God's home in Jerusalem would be built by David's son Solomon, whose name Shlomo means peace, hinting to the vision of Isaiah of the peace that was yet to come, when all the nations would go up to the house of the God of Jacob, and from Zion will go forth the Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 122, A Noble Vision and a Nobel Vision. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. If you could visit any museum in any age, what would it be? To me, the answer is obvious, and it is not the Louvre or the Hermitage or any palace of yesteryear. No, ladies and gentlemen, the answer is and must be an edifice that was designed and brought into being in 71 CE, immediately after the destruction of Jerusalem. It was created by the Emperor Vespasian in order to exhibit the manifold treasures taken from the temple in Jerusalem. The building and the golden objects within it made it one of the wonders of the world, and the name that Vespasian bestowed upon it was the Temple of Peace. For several centuries following, if you wish to see the menorah, the table, the golden altar, you could make your way to the Roman Forum and visit the Temple of Peace. In rabbinic literature, there are sages who would describe going to Rome and seeing an object from the temple. They do not say where in Rome they gazed upon these objects, but it would have been in the Temple of Peace. And if the rabbis refused to give the edifice its appellation, it is perhaps because they realized the profound and painful irony. This is a building known as the Temple of Peace, where everyone can come and see all that Rome has taken from a country that it brutally and very unpeacefully destroyed. To put it another way, Jews in ancient times could ponder the suffering, massacre, and exile of their ancestors by visiting something called the Temple of Peace. And there is a deeper point to this irony. Oxford professor Martin Goodman, in his book Roman Jerusalem, which describes the contrast between Jewish and Roman culture at the time of the Second Temple's destruction, notes that Jews, like Romans, recognize the reality of war and its necessity. At the same time, Goodman continues, Jews have been careful never to idealize warfare and avoided glorifications of military might as an end in itself. As he puts it, quote, Jews, as much as Romans, viewed war as a natural condition, but unlike Romans, they sometimes expressed a hope that this might change, end quote. Despite the very violent exhortations that appear at times in the Hebrew Bible, at the same time, Goodman further notes, quote, the biblical prophets Isaiah, Micah, and Joel all looked forward with longing to a time when there would be no more war at all, end quote. And if there was anyone who understood this, it was Menachem Begin, who was seen as a man of war, but was awarded the Nobel Prize for making peace. And in his acceptance speech in Oslo, it was Begin who would most eloquently explain the vision of Isaiah to the world. Begin's speech in Oslo began in Begin's usual classy way. Right before Begin left for Oslo, and right before her own passing, Golda Meir had caustically remarked that, quote, Begin did not deserve a Nobel Prize, he deserved an Oscar, end quote, by which she meant that she believed that he was acting and, in her view, did not truly deserve the Nobel Peace Prize. By the time Begin had arrived in Norway, Meyer had died, and Begin, gentleman as always, began by celebrating this Israeli leader who had attacked him, saying at the start, quote, I ask for permission first to pay tribute to Golda Meir, my predecessor, a great leader and prime minister who strove with all her heart to achieve peace between Israel and her neighbors. Her blessed memory will live forever in the hearts of the Jewish people and of all peace-loving nations, end quote. And then Begin addressed the virtue for which he was being awarded, peace. It was the Jews, Begin argued, 
who gave the love of peace to the world. Begin's inspiration was the second chapter of Isaiah, where, immediately after the first chapter, in which Israel is castigated, suddenly Isaiah looks far ahead to the future. Chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amot saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall come to pass in the last days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Thus the prophet simultaneously stresses the goal of peace and the fact that in this eschatological age all will seek the God of Jacob who dwells in Jerusalem. Referring to this passage and its parallel in the book of Micah, Begin said, quote, The ancient Jewish people gave the world the vision of eternal peace, of universal disarmament, of abolishing the teaching and learning of war. Two prophets, Yeshayahu ben Amotz and Micha Hamorashti, having foreseen the spiritual unity of man under God, with his word coming forth from Jerusalem, gave the nations of the world the following vision expressed in identical terms, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And then Begin added his own small reflection on peace, saying, quote, Despite the tragedies and disappointments of the past, we must never forsake that vision, that human dream, that unshakable faith. Peace is the beauty of life. It is sunshine. It is the smile of a child, the love of a mother, joy of a father, the togetherness of a family. It is the advancement of man, the victory of a just cause, the triumph of truth. Peace is all of these and more and more. End quote. Begin, of course, understood that those assembled in the auditorium did not necessarily see him as a man of peace, but as a fighter. He therefore reminded the audience implicitly of the fact that he, who had just said that peace is the smile of a child, the love of a mother, the joy of a father, the togetherness of a family, he, Menachem Bacon himself, had had his own family destroyed, his father and mother murdered, and that the world had done nothing to stop it, and that this had taught him that evil had to be fought for peace to be possible. This is part of what he said. Quote, But in my generation, ladies and gentlemen, there was a time indescribable. Six million Jews, men, women, and children, a number larger than many a nation in Europe, were dragged to a wanton death and slaughtered methodically in the heart of the civilized continent. Other than a few famous and unforgettable exceptions, they were left alone to face the destroyer. At such a time unheard of since the first generation, the hour struck to rise and fight for the dignity of man, for survival, for liberty, For every value of the human image a man has been endowed with by his creator, for every known inalienable right he stands for and lives for. Indeed, there are days when to fight for a cause so absolutely just is the highest human command. Norway has known such days, and so have we. Only in honoring that command comes the regeneration of the concept of peace. Let it, however, be declared and known, stressed and noted, that fighters for freedom hate war. End quote. War, Begin is saying, is at times necessary, but never something beloved. Peace is an aspiration. Begin's words, Begin's perspective, building on the prophecies of Isaiah, marks a contrast to that of many of Israel's enemies past and present, 
who, as with Rome, speak of peace, but that peace all too often involves the destruction of the Jewish commonwealth. In pondering Begin's words, I realized that there is an even more painful irony to the fact that the treasures of the temple were placed in a Roman edifice called the Temple of Peace, because the Jewish view of war and peace, as articulated by Begin, was actually best embodied by the Jewish temple, the temple of the people of Israel. The temple, as we know, was the dream of David, but this was denied by God because, as Chronicles tells us, David was a man of war. As we discussed in our study of Samuel, David's dream of building the temple was denied, lest the beautiful building be seen as a testament to his own might. God's home in Jerusalem would be built by David's son Solomon, whose name Shlomo means peace, hinting to the vision of Isaiah of the peace that was yet to come, when all the nations would go up to the house of the God of Jacob, and from Zion will go forth the Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We're now able to see how heartbreaking is the irony that Vespasian placed the temple treasures in a quote-unquote temple of peace. The true temple, the temple of God, and all that it embodied reminds us that the Bible's approach to war and shalom, war and peace, is the reverse of that of Rome. Jerusalem's temple truly was the temple of peace, and it is only in reading Begin's citation of Isaiah that I realized that this vision of a world at peace is strikingly found in a passage that is the thematic opposite of the first prophecy of Isaiah, which we studied yesterday. The opening of Isaiah's book, Chazon, the castigating vision of Isaiah that is read on the Sabbath before we mourn the destruction of Jerusalem, that prophecy has come to embody all the tragedies and trauma of centuries, all that the ninth of Av is dedicated to mourning. Isaiah's description of Assyria's assault on the Holy Land in chapter 1, verse 7, would later capture all that Babylon and Rome would do to Jerusalem itself. Isaiah said, Your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your land strangers devour it in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. That's chapter 1. That's Isaiah's first prophecy. That's the prophecy that is read on the Sabbath before the ninth of Av. But the prophecy that follows, the prophecy of chapter 2, Isaiah's eschatological vision, signifies how, despite all its trials and travails, Judaism never gave up on the vision of a world ultimately redeemed, and how, because the Jews recognized the importance of battling evil but never made war an end in itself, therefore, they continued to endure throughout the centuries. Cambridge historian Simon Goldhill, in his own reflection about Rome and Judea, tells us the following tale from the Second Temple, quote, There is a pleasingly knowing story about Pompey, the Roman general, who marched into Jerusalem in 63 BC after a three-month siege. With the bluff disregard of local sympathies that made the Romans what they were, and has all too often characterized the rulers of Jerusalem, he walked straight into the Holy of Holies. This sacred space could not be entered except by the high priest, with many ritual precautions on one day of the year, the holiest of days, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But Pompey walked straight in, we are told, to see what he no doubt expected to be a glorious statue to match the significance of the temple for the Jewish people. Romans regularly took cult statues of other cultures and transported them back to Rome in triumphant appropriation. He was amazed, Goldhill continues, to find nothing there and remained baffled by the whole experience. This story is told by Tacitus, the Roman historian, but it is retold by the Jews. History is not always controlled by the victors. The contrast of the emptiness of the shrine and the practical man of war's confusion is eloquent and for once allows the non-material its moment of assertion, 
over the powerful realities of war and conquest. End quote. Today, the Forum, center of Roman might, is in ruins. And though several of the columns of the building once known as the Temple of Peace have, I believe, lately been restored, nevertheless, that building, which once housed the treasures of Jerusalem, is gone as well. What had been built to celebrate Rome's power and its conquests is now a testament to Rome's own destruction. There may be no better embodiment of Israel's endurance versus that of Rome than the fact that the Roman Temple of Peace is now in pieces. But perhaps one greater reflection of Jewish eternity is the fact that a man named Menachem, consoler, named thus because he was born right after the ninth of Av, a man who experienced so many ninth of Avs in his own life, later stood as prime minister of a Jewish state before an international audience in Oslo and proudly spoke of Jewish history, its prophetic vision, and all that it gave the world. I therefore close my talk today with a passage of Begin's Nobel speech. Allow me now to turn to you, Madam President of the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, and to all its members and say, thank you. I thank you for the great distinction. It does not, however, belong to me. It belongs to my people, the ancient people and renaissance nation that came back in love and devotion to the land of its ancestors after centuries of homelessness and persecution. This prestigious recognition is due to this people because they suffered so much, because they lost so many, because they love peace and want it with all their hearts. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together with you tomorrow and wishing you a luminous Hanukkah, signing off.